The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. We saw this morning that the second chapter of Genesis prepares the way for what is to be related in the third chapter. The two hang together very closely. They belong together integrally. And uh, as we read that second chapter, we realize that step by step, our minds and thoughts are being prepared for some rather momentous event to occur. And that occurs as soon as we begin to read the third chapter, which begins with the words, now the serpent. And uh, it emphasizes those words. The words that are placed first in the Hebrew sentences are the emphatic words. And here, now the serpent calls, brings this animal to the fore and focuses our attention upon it. We are told that the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And that's a very difficult statement to understand. I'm not sure that we can completely understand it. The word serpent simply means an ordinary snake. We have no reason to read into this word anything particular. And then the question arises, in what sense can you speak about a snake as being subtle? In some of the fables, it's usually the fox that is subtle, is it not? The fox is always scheming and devising something and outwitting somebody, but you hardly think of a snake that way. What is meant then when it says that the serpent, the snake, is more subtle than any beast of the field that the Lord God has made? (coughs) Well... It would seem that this statement is made in connection with what follows, where man is tempted, where there is an intellectual temptation, an appeal to the intellect and the obedience of man. And you might very well ask just how can a serpent be called subtle in that respect? I think that the phrase really takes us behind the scenes, as it were, and simply points out that this serpent had the ability, because it was used of Satan, to tempt man. More than that, I'm not sure that we can say. But the serpent, we may notice, is created by God. It is more subtle than any beasts of the field which the Lord God has made. The idea is that there are other beasts of the field that God has made, and the serpent is also a beast which God has made, but it is more subtle than these others. It is introduced just that way. And it speaks to the woman, and the question which it asks can be uh, stated something like this, has God really said ye shall not eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden? Now, before we examine that question itself, we should notice the fact that the serpent speaks. And in the light of the second chapter of Genesis, that's a very startling thing. We go back to this matter of Adam naming the animals. And in naming the animals, Adam, you see, was acting as a creature in the image of God. Only those who are in in the image of God have the ability to speak and think. The animals do not have that ability. They cannot categorize man in the sense that he can categorize them. They cannot describe man as man can describe them. Man is not their help, but they are man's help. There is a profound distinction between the two which the book of Genesis makes. And man speaks, but an animal should not speak. Now here the serpent speaks. The serpent actually talks. And that, it would seem to me, would show right away that there was something out of the ordinary. Something was wrong. Adam and Eve recognized that they alone could speak that the animals could not do that, but here an animal is doing that. And so I would think that right away Eve would recognize that something is out of order. Now there are those, of course, who dismiss this chapter as being a fable. In a fable, animals speak. 
There are a number of collections of fables. Uh, uh, the Aesop's Fables, I guess, is the best known. Uh, the fables of Phaedrus, the Latin writer. Uh, the fables of the Eastern writers, Bidpai and Lokman and so on. They have fables in which animals speak. And those are very interesting stories. You can do worse than read some of these fables. They usually have a moral. And uh, the moral is uh, the expression of practical wisdom. Uh, there is the fable, for example, of Aesop about the wolf and the lamb. You remember that the lamb was drinking of the water downstream and the wolf was above stream drinking of the water and the wolf uh, accused the lamb of muddying the water. And so it, that gave him the excuse to pounce upon the lamb and destroy it. Now, I forget just what the moral of that fable is. <coughs> don't drink downstream from a wolf, maybe, or something like that. I don't know. But at any rate, most of these fables have a moral, and the moral is the heart of the thing. Uh, the moral is usually an, an expression of practical wisdom, and if we follow out those morals, why, we're doing very well. But when the wolf speaks to the lamb and the lamb replies, we don't take that very seriously. We don't believe that the wolf ever did speak or that the lamb ever did reply. It's a very sad story, I suppose, but uh, we don't take it too seriously. We know it never happened. A fable is simply a story that illustrates a certain point, and that is true of all of these fables. They, they're very interesting, and whoever thought them up had quite an imagination. I imagine that they have grown up over the years, and every people probably has a collection of such fables, and we simply don't take them very earnestly. We know that animals don't speak, and when the animal in a fable speaks, we know that that is only a literary device and nothing more than that. Now, is that what we have here in Genesis? When the serpent speaks, are we now reading something that is like these fables of Aesop and nothing more than that? Well, we realize right away that that is not the case. In the Old Testament, animals don't speak. You have the speaking of Balaam's ass, and I believe that is about all. But the animals do not speak. And furthermore, if you were going to dismiss this as being a fable, you would have to find some kind of a moral. A fable usually has a moral. And there is no moral attached here at all. So to say that the third chapter of Genesis is just a fable is really not to begin to do justice to it. Now, we know that today every kind of an effort is made to deny the historicity of the events that are recorded here in the third chapter of Genesis. And so, while some would say this is not a fable, they would dismiss it as a legend. All peoples have legends of one kind or another. These are more or less harmless stories that have been handed down. Another term would be a saga. A saga, again, is some story of heroes of ancient times, and we are told that that is what we have here. But then, does that really satisfy us? You see, this explains the origin of sin in the world. There is a moral earnestness about this that doesn't seem to fit in very well with a legend. Furthermore, the same characters that are found in the third chapter of Genesis are found also in the second chapter of Genesis and in the fourth chapter of Genesis. There is a connection here tying this all up with the entrance of sin into the world. This just does not look like the sort of story that is told for entertainment or that is told around the campfire or anything like that. There is a moral earnestness to it, a seriousness to it that does not fit very well with an ordinary legend. Now, there are stronger reasons than that for denying that it is a legend, but I want to let those go for the time being. There are those who say that this is a myth. <laughs> now, a myth, in, in the modern parlance, is not necessarily a story about gods and goddesses. We've read Bullfinch's mythology. You, you remember about the Greek gods and goddesses and in uh, grammar or high school, wherever we studied that, we realized that these were very interesting stories. But even as children, we didn't take them very seriously. We didn't believe that they were true. We never believed in the existence of a Zeus or a Hera or any of those other gods and goddesses. 
But now we are told that a myth is not necessarily the story of gods and goddesses, but that a myth may be a story that presents a religious truth, and that the myth, therefore, is different from a saga. It's not simply a story about a hero or about people in antiquity. A myth tells us religious, presents religious truth to us under the form of a story. Well, is that what we have here? Are we dealing with a myth which really does uh, not relate something that actually happened, but simply presents religious truth to us so that uh, we can ob obtain that truth and learn from it? Now, before I want to answer that question, or I answer that question, I want also to mention that there are some who say that this is a parable. And the use of the term parable really differs very little from the use of the term myth. A parable, again, is a story which tells or which contains a spiritual lesson for us. Now, in the New Testament, there are plenty of these parables. Our Lord taught in parables. And you remember that when he taught in parables, he always applied a lesson. The disciples learned a great deal because our Lord expounded these parables to them. In the Old Testament also there are a number of parables, and these parables contain a lesson. There is the story of the ewe lamb, for example. When David had committed his terrible sin, the Lord sent the prophet Nathan to him. And Nathan realized full well that he couldn't just go up to David and begin to uh, reason with David about his sin, it seems as though David was in the frame of mind where he might very well have taken the life of anybody that became too inquisitive. So Nathan began by telling a story, a very simple oriental story. There were two men in one city, he says, one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had brought up, and it was to him as a daughter. And there came a wayfaring man, and the rich man spared to take of his own flocks and herds, but took the ewe lamb from the poor man and offered that to the traveler, the wayfaring man. And when David heard this story, why, his heart was kindled with indignation, and right away he began to pass judgment. He said, The man that hath done this thing shall die, and he shall restore fourfold, because he hath done this thing, and because he had no pity." And by that time, Nathan was able to apply the lesson of the parable, and he said, Thou art the man. And then he began to preach to David. You see, he used this parable not to entertain David, but to bring David to a confession of his own sin, so that Nathan could speak to David, and Nathan could apply the meaning of the parable to David. A parable, then, contains a lesson. Our Lord illustrated that well in the parables that he taught. They contain an application, a lesson, and that is the very characteristic of a parable. Now, you do not find that here in the third chapter of Genesis. After this account is given, no lesson is given to us. We are not told that we should not yield to temptation as Adam did. Nothing of that kind is given to us in Genesis. There is no lesson or application that is based upon this third chapter of Genesis. It simply recounts something which the writer believed took place. And that is the question that we have to keep ever before us. Now we find remarkable support for that interpretation in the New Testament. In the fifth chapter of Romans, Paul compares the action of Adam with the action of Christ. As Adam did one thing, Christ has done another. And if all that Paul says about Adam is not true, if there was no Adam, then does it not follow that there need not be any Christ? If Adam's work is mythical... How do we know that Christ's work is not mythical? If Adam is not an historical character, 
then it is not necessary to believe that Christ is an historical character. That is the whole thrust of Paul's argument. Any one of those verses that he uses in that 12th chapter, in that 5th chapter, beginning at verse 12 on, would illustrate this point. Wherefore, as by one man, to take just the 18th verse as an example, wherefore, as by one man, it is unto all men unto condemnation, wherefore, as by the transgression of one man, it is unto all men unto condemnation, so also by the righteous act of one man, it is unto all men unto justification of life. Now that is one of the most profound statements in Scripture. And notice what is involved there. Wherefore, that introductory word connects the two parts of the verse. Just as this is true, so this is true. That is what Paul is saying. As by the transgression of the one man, that is Adam, it, and the word is not given in the Greek, and you have to supply something like the condemnation, is unto all men unto condemnation, that is, Paul is saying that the reason why all men are under condemnation is because of the act of the first man, Adam. Now that's his argument. Then he brings in the conclusion, so by the righteous act, and the righteous act corresponds to the transgression of Adam, by the righteous act of one, that is our Lord's death and resurrection, it is unto all men unto a justification that results in life, or a justification of life. What Paul is saying is that the justification which Christians receive is based upon the righteous act of Jesus Christ. And that righteous act of Jesus Christ is compared with the transgression of the first man. There are two men who represent the human race. The first man is of the earth earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. And if the first man is mythical and never lived, then the whole argument regarding the second man is worthless. Now that's the significance of this. Paul believed in the historicity of Adam. And inasmuch as <coughs> Romans is the scripture, we may trust what he has to say about it. So you cannot simply dismiss Adam that easily. Well, there is another interpretation that is proposed quite often, and that is this. What we read in Genesis 3, we are told, is the experience of every man. Adam is every man, and every man is Adam. And to support that view, the idea is brought forth that the Hebrew word Adam means simply mankind. You are Adam, and I am Adam, and Adam is us, if you will. Every man is Adam. Now, what can we say about that? Adam's experience is our experience. And this chapter is given unto us to warn us about the pitfalls of temptation. You and I have temptations that we must fight and that we must resist. And if we will read about Adam, we will realize the tragedy of yielding to temptation. That, we are told, is the meaning of this passage. Now, let's look at it a little bit more closely and see if that is really true. Is it true that Adam's experience is the experience of every man? It's not true at all. Adam's experience is not our experience. Adam is the only one that passed through that experience. When Adam was faced with temptation, he was an innocent creature. And by yielding to temptation, he fell into an estate of sin and misery. By yielding to temptation, Adam became a sinner. Now you and I, by yielding to temptation, do not become sinners. We're sinners already. We do not fall into an estate of sin and misery. We're born into an estate of sin and misery. 
And as fallen creatures, we yield to temptation. And by yielding to temptation, we become more hardened in our sin, but we do not become sinners by yielding to temptation, by sinning. Adam became a sinner by sinning. We are already sinners. Adam fell through his act. We are already fallen. When Adam yielded to the temptation, he fell into this estate of sin and misery from a state of innocency where he could be pronounced very good. You and I, however, are born in this estate, this fallen estate. And when we sin and we yield to temptation, we do not become sinners. We already are sinners. And there's a profound difference there. Adam's experience, then, is not the experience of every man. It was a unique experience. Adam and Eve were the only ones that passed through that experience. And we have not done that. So it will not do to say that Adam is every man and that Adam's experience is our experience. That's too superficial a view. We cannot do that. The matter is far more serious than that. Now I would like to call your attention to this fact. Genesis 3 is the only bit of writing in the world which accounts for the origin of sin and misery in the world. If you take the Babylonian creation account, there is nothing corresponding to a fall in that account. Rather, the gods, right from the start, are rather pre pretty bad actors, I would say, to begin with. There's no fall in that account at all. Or in any of these documents from antiquity. Now, suppose you take Ovid's Metamorphoses, which I think is perhaps the best example that can be chosen. What do you find there? Well, you find that there was a time when everything was fine and then suddenly things were not fine. And you may say, well, there's an account of the fall, but look at it a little bit more carefully. What is this condition in which everything was fine? It was a condition in which everything, well, everything went well for man. There was no sickness. People didn't cheat one another and that sort of thing. It was a sort of a political utopia where God is not brought into the picture, but everything went pretty well for man. Then suddenly things changed. There was sickness and people began to cheat one another and so on. And that is the closest, as far as I know, that you can come to the third chapter of Genesis. But the metamorphoses do not say anything about an, giving an explanation of what took place. There is nothing that is parallel to the account of the fall Nothing that explains at all the true nature of what happened to man. Now the condition in which we find ourselves today is not simply one of unhappiness, not merely one in which there is sickness, in which people cheat one another and so on. It's far more serious than that. According to the Bible, we are in a fallen estate in which our heart is corrupt. And not only is our heart corrupt, but we are guilty before God. And we can do nothing to deliver ourselves. The only thing that can be done can be done by God himself. And God has done that. What the Bible tells us is unique. In other words, you simply cannot take out this third chapter of Genesis and say this is one of a number of similar accounts. It's not. It is a unique account. There is no parallel to it anywhere in the world. These other cosmogenies don't even begin to come to grips with the problems that are involved, for they don't see what those problems are. Genesis 3, therefore, is unique. And I think we should point that fact out all the time. Adam's experience is not the experience of every man. When we look at the remainder of the Bible, we realize that this chapter purports to relate to us what actually took place. Now, that does not mean that there is no symbolism in the chapter. There is. But we must interpret that symbolism as it should be interpreted, especially with respect to the trees of the garden. They have a symbolical meaning. But that does not mean that they were not trees, and in a certain sense, Adam, as the representative of the human race, 
has a particular significance, but that does not mean that there was no Adam. Our Lord quoted from the book of Genesis. The New Testament refers to it. It is perfectly clear that the New Testament regards it as that which reporting that which actually has happened. And so the serpent speaks. And we cannot dismiss this as a mere fable. And I brought in all these other views to get rid of them all in one breath. They simply do not help us in understanding the third chapter of Genesis. Now the language of the serpent is deceptive. The Hebrew particle can be rendered something like this. Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. And you can almost hear the tone of voice that was used. It was to imply that God was very niggardly. God was withholding from these people something that would have been for their good. Has God really said this? That you can't eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden? Or oh, what a mean thing that is. You can just read and hear the way Satan approaches. And Eve replies to him. She says of the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Now Eve replies to the serpent, and it may be that her intentions were well meant, but she is not accurate in her reply. First of all, she generalizes it. She uses the plural instead of the singular. God had said to Adam, in the day that thou eatest thereof, dying thou shalt die, thou shalt surely die. Eve says, in the day that ye eat thereof, ye shall surely die, making it general and plural. Furthermore, she uses another word. She says, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Now the word touch here probably means more than just handling it. It probably is another synonym for eating of the fruit. But at any rate, it is an addition to the command of God. <coughs> now, whether Eve is simply interpreting the command or whether she has become a bit inaccurate may be a question for dispute. I'm inclined to think that the latter is the case because she has given the evil one the opportunity that he wants. And there's a lesson right here, and that is don't try to reason with Satan. Now, I don't mean that Satan is going to appear to you and sit down to talk things over, not at all. Uh, I do think that when Martin Luther threw the inkwell at the devil, that he hit the devil. But I think he hit the devil not so much with that inkwell as he did with the things that he wrote and he preached. The devil was uh, spending, I think, an undue amount of time with Martin Luther which means that Luther was being faithful to Christ. And the reason why the devil lets most of us go by without bothering too much about us is that we're not causing him enough trouble. But when we are faithful to Christ, then the devil becomes very concerned. And when I say we shouldn't talk things over with the devil and reason with the devil, I would simply call to your mind what our Lord did. When evil is presented to us, don't try to rationalize that evil, but simply remember the scripture. It is written, thou shalt not, and so on. And that's the only way to handle evil of any kind, is to appeal to the scripture. And if we do that, the temptation and the tempter will flee from it. But Eve, I'm inclined to think, slipped up here. Now, she should have realized right away that something was wrong. When the serpent was speaking, she should have understood that something had gone wrong because serpents cannot speak. But she reasons with him, and that gives Satan his opportunity, and he comes right out and says, Ye shall not surely die. Now, his language is almost vicious in its forcefulness. In the Hebrew, it would be read, no. That is the first word that he thunders out. No. The idea is, it is not true, this thought that ye will surely die. The English is rather weak. Ye shall not surely die. The Hebrew, no, ye shall not die. 
this whole statement of God's is not true. Ye shall not surely die. Now he comes right out and, and says that. And so Eve is placed in the position of choosing between God and the Satan. Well now, was Eve a neutral? Do you think that she was a neutral weighing the claims of God in one hand and the claims of the evil one in the other hand? I don't think so for a minute. I think she was on the side of the devil or she never would have listened to it. There is no such thing as neutrality. We are either for Christ or we are against Christ. You can't be neutral. And nevertheless, there's a problem here. And it's a very serious problem. And it's a problem that we cannot solve, but if we can even recognize the existence of the problem, I think we've gone a long way to understanding. We know that Adam and Eve were left to the freedom of their will. They were not forced from without to do evil. That I think we can surely say. Satan did not have the power to compel them to sin. Their choice was a choice of free volition. They chose to do evil. But now let's go behind the scenes a little bit or probe a little bit more deeply into this question. A being chooses in accordance with its nature. Let's illustrate that with respect to God. The Bible says that God cannot lie. To lie would be to go contrary to God's nature. God cannot deny himself. He cannot go contrary to his nature. He cannot lie. He cannot do evil. Now, if you want to say that that's a limitation, all right. But it's a rather blessed limitation. God cannot go contrary to his nature. Our Lord could not have yielded to the evil one. Now, there's a problem there. You may say, how then could he have been tempted? And I don't know the answer to that. All I know is that the Bible shows us a very real temptation and yet we know that our Lord was sinless. And the possibility of his sinning is, an, in, is not to be recognized. But Adam and Eve were created good. God saw all that he had made and behold it was very good. Now the question then is, how could sin find lodgment in a soul that was good? How could the change in nature have taken place? Now let's illustrate this, if we can, by the matter of regeneration. <coughs> we know that when a man is dead in trespasses and sins, when a man is an unbeliever, he simply does not have the power to come unto Christ. He is dead. And a dead being cannot act like an alive being. Now I know there is a great deal of evangelism today which denies that. I have heard men at young people's conferences, for example, say something like this to the young people. God has done everything he can to save you. Now his hands, as it were, are tied and it's up to you. Well, if it's up to us, we're lost. Because if it's up to us, we simply haven't got the power to change. We cannot come to God in our own strength. We are lost, fallen creatures. And it requires the sovereign power of the Spirit of God to bring us to newness of life. Ye must be born again, says our Lord. But we can no more cause our own new birth than we could cause our physical birth. As we were passive in our first birth, we are passive in the new birth. We cannot cause ourselves to be born again. Now the way that the Spirit of God operates is very wonderful. He commands us to preach the gospel. And in preaching the gospel, we command men, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But there is no magic in those words. I preach those words, and those words in themselves can do nothing. But the Spirit of God, in mysterious fashion, causes the soul who hears those words to be born again. And the first conscious, logical act of the newborn soul is to believe on Jesus Christ. If any of you are asking, am I born again? I would say this, 
Do you believe on Jesus Christ? Do you trust him as your Savior? If you are trusting Christ for salvation, then you are born again. For no man that is yet in his sins can trust Christ for salvation. We cannot act contrary to our nature. And if my nature is a fallen nature, then I am at enmity with God. I hate God. I hate his word. I hate all that he stands for. And it is only when God himself has opened the eyes of my understanding through regeneration that old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And now I love God and his word and his people and his work. But as long as I am in my fallen state, I will never come to Christ. I know there's mystery here, but I know this, that no man has ever saved another man or can save him. It's only the Spirit of God who can bring the fallen soul to newness of life, who can regenerate, who can change the nature I know there's mystery here, but I know this, that no man has ever saved another man or can save him. It's only the Spirit of God who can bring the fallen soul to newness of life, who can regenerate, who can change the nature. You've heard that story about Dwight L. Moody, I guess. He met a man that was lying in the gutter and it was intoxicated. And the man said, I'm one of your converts. And Moody said something like this. Yes, he said, I guess you are one of my converts. If you were a convert of the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't be where you are now. And I think that illustrates that man cannot save man. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot change our nature any more than the leopard can change its spots. We cannot do it. It requires sovereign grace. It is God alone who gives us a new nature. And once we have that new nature, then our heart's affections are entirely different from what they were before. But now to come back to Genesis, you see, what caused the change in the nature of Adam and Eve? There's the question. If Eve yielded to the devil, she must have been a fallen creature. And Adam also. But what caused that change? Now the theologians have some Latin phrases that they use, such as posse peccari and posse non peccari and so on, able to sin and able not to sin and so on. And that sounds very learned, but it doesn't explain anything. And when you're preaching on this, if you use the Latin phrases, well, it sounds as though you know what you're talking about, but it doesn't explain a single thing. <laughs> We can't explain it. We don't know how sin could find a lodgment in a human soul that was good. What caused that change in the nature of Eve and Adam? We simply cannot explain it. We don't know. But it must have taken place. Now another question, perhaps of lesser, lesser significance, when precisely did that change occur? Did it occur at the instant when the evil one spoke to Eve and she responded to him? I personally am inclined to think so. But again, you cannot be positive. But I feel, you see, that when the serpent said, Ye shall not surely die, he was talking to somebody that was already on his side. I think then the change had taken place. And notice what a remarkable psychological study this is of the way that Satan acts. Now when he says, ye shall not surely die, he comes right out with what you can call a good honest lie, if you can call it that. A lie that is straightforward like that usually doesn't do too much harm. If you find that a man lies, you soon catch on. And then you don't have any more dealings with him. The little child, for example, that has been told not to eat any of the candy and eats some of that sticky candy and gets it over her face and then says to her mother, I didn't take any. She's not deceiving her mother. She's just told a straightforward lie and it hasn't deceived anybody. Now, Satan uses that kind of a lie whenever it suits his purpose. But 
There's a far more effective way of deceiving than that. And that is to impugn the motives of someone else. And he sees that Eve is listening to him. And so he goes on and says, For God knows that in the day ye eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as God, knowing good and evil. There's his reason. Now that is hitting below the belt, as it were. And you and I know that that is the way Satan works. I don't think we can make a greater mistake than to assume that Satan comes with an objective argument. Now, in the churches, we have controversy every now and then. We have to have. Because it is the truth of God that is involved. But the tragedy of it all is that these doctrines cannot be brought out into the open and discussed objectively. There always has to be someone who in, introduces personality and impugns the motive of somebody who is taking a different position. I think one of the greatest experiences in my life has been my association with the faculty at my seminary. We don't always see eye to eye on everything, on matters of detail. But we have been able to discuss these matters, each one presenting what he thinks is right, and then to go out to lunch together, as though there'd never been any difference of opinion. And I think the reason for that is that everyone is sincerely trying to say the thing that he believes is right, and we can go on in a friendly spirit. We have that in our presbytery, and I'm very grateful for it. We do have differences of opinion, but they have not broken personal friendships. Because each man, I think, is trying to say the thing that he believes is right. And we have to have honest discussion in the church. If we don't have that honest discussion, then the church is going to die. We have to be constantly considering the things of God, and there are differences of opinion. And we must expect that. Now, when you have that kind of controversy, it can be carried on in love. We can respect one another, even though at times we may disagree with one another. We find that out as we go on. The different denominations don't agree on everything. But the remarkable thing to me has been that we can respect one another's differences. We can differ in love. And we can realize that other people are good Christian people, even though they may not quite see everything the way that we do. We have to have that respect for one another, which is based upon genuine Christian love, and which allows other people to have honest differences of opinion. Now, when Christians can get along that way, we have real Christian unity. I think that Christian unity is a fact. It's here. We see it right here today. We see it wherever Christian people get together, and when they have differences, those differences are discussed in love, and we realize that each one is earnest in trying to understand the Scriptures. We must have that kind of thing. And I believe God blesses that. There is real scriptural unity because it is based upon Christian love. But that is not the way the devil fights. And we find very often that those who are on the side of the devil use his tactics. Now, it is just a fact that one of the greatest disgraces of the Church of Christ and this applies to the Protestant Church as well as to the Roman Catholic Church, is the playing of politics in the Church by ecclesiastical politicians. You know that that type of person stoops at all, to almost any degree to gain the end that he desires. You've seen it happen in Church history. The burning of John Huss, for example, will serve to show what I have in mind. People will maneuver behind the scenes in order to suppress someone else. It's been very vividly brought home to me by the experiences I had in connection with the late Dr. J. Gresson Machen. Nobody would come right out in the open and answer his arguments, but they could smear his name, they could spread stories about him that were not true, and those stories are hard to live down. People are willing to believe the falsehood rather than the truth. 
And this is the way that Satan fights. We have to remember it. And here's a good practical rule, I think, for us as Christians. When somebody says something derogatory about someone else to you, just forget it. Don't believe it. It may be true and it may not be true. And whatever you do, don't spread it. Don't repeat it. Gossip is a terrible thing. And sometimes I think gossip is one of the worst of sins. You can destroy another person's character by gossip. And Satan delights in that. And this gossip simply, well, to use a Semitic idiom, eats the bones of another person, destroys that person. And that's the way Satan fights. It's much easier to spread stories about a minister who is contending for the truth. Because those take hold and they do a lot of harm. And you may for a time effectively stifle his witness. But if that man is contending for the truth earnestly, remember that the truth has a way of coming to the fore sooner or later. It's wonderful how God defends those who are on his side. And if they are earnestly contending for the faith, sooner or later that truth comes to the fore. And one way you can help those who are defending the truth is by refusing to believe the stories that Satan spreads about them. There were all kinds of stories spread about the late Dr. Machen. And there was no truth in any of them. But people believed them. He made his money in liquor. That was one of them. There was no truth in that at all, but that was spread far and wide. He, when he was through church Sunday evening, he took his wife and children to the movies. He wasn't married. But that was one of the stories that was spread far and wide. He was temperamentally unfit to teach, and yet he was one of the most popular teachers, I guess, that there ever was. And the boys loved him. But that sort of thing does a lot of harm. And that's exactly how Satan is fighting here. God knows that in the day you eat thereof, your eyes will be opened. Now, what he says is particularly damaging because formally it's true. Scripture says their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened. It was an opening of the eyes. But not the kind that Satan had in mind. Satan's statement is formally true. Your eyes will be opened and ye will be as God, knowing good and evil. Formally, yes. God knows good and evil. God loves the good because the good is the expression of his nature. God hates the evil because the evil is contrary to his nature. But they would know good and evil also. They would know it from the standpoint of fallen creatures. And they would love the evil and they would reject the good. That is what would happen. But Satan does not say that. By this formally true statement, he impugns the motives of God and he deceives Eve. And so he implies that God is somehow withholding something good from them. Ye will be as God, knowing good and evil. And the implication is that God does not want you to have what he possesses. He is jealous, in other words. Now that was a vicious thing to do. And that is the way that Satan fights today. That is in back of so many of these modern theologies and philosophies that hold out to man that he can have anything that he wants if he only abandons Orthodox Christianity and takes these new views of life. That is what Satan is doing today. There is one thing about Satan that must be said, and that is he's not very original. He is presenting today the same kind of lie that he presented back in the Garden of Eden. The new morality is the very thing that he offered to Eve. What he is saying in effect is this, Eve, don't listen to law. Authority deadens. Love is the law of life. And so express yourself, and if you would be a free person, 
and not bound by tradition and authority, eat of the forbidden fruit and be as God, knowing good and evil. It's the same line, if I may use that term, that Satan uses today. And the new morality and the new theology and the new everything else almost is nothing different from what was found in germ form there in the Garden of Eden and offered to Eve. And so Eve responds. Listening to this, she looks at the tree and sees that it is good for food and a delight to the eyes. It is all of this, but she looks at it now from the standpoint of one that is on Satan's side. She partakes of the fruit and gives to her husband, and he eats also. Now, I've never yet been able to go through this chapter without somebody asking the question, where was Adam all the time? And I don't know the answer to that. The Bible doesn't say. Now, what can we say about that? I assume he was present there because she gave the fruit to him, her husband that was with her. <coughs> we can't say any more than that for the simple reason that the Bible doesn't say any more than that. But now we are told that their eyes were opened. And so what Satan had said was formally true. Their eyes were opened. They were opened, however, not to the delights that Satan had promised to them. Their eyes were opened now to their true condition, or perhaps it would be more accurate to say their eyes were opened to the consequences of their condition, and they realized those consequences in the presence of shame. They realized that now they were naked and they misinterpreted nakedness and sought to cover it up. Before they had not been ashamed, before they had judged all things from a right principle, they had judged everything from the standpoint of God's revelation. Now they judge everything from the standpoint of a fallen human being and consequently from now on, Adam and Eve are basically mistaken in all that they say, in all that they think. Thus they seek to cover up their shame, their nakedness. And this is the first of man's many tragic acts to alleviate the situation in which he finds himself. This is the first attempt at salvation by human works. This is the first attempt to better the world in which fallen man finds himself, to use the means that are at his disposal in order to alleviate conditions. And so they make a covering for themselves. But then, of course, this is not satisfactory. Now, I want to close with just this thought. There is brought home to us here very clearly what the nature of man's fallen condition is. Sin involves, first of all, a corruption of the human heart, the pollution of man's heart. And that is seen in the shame that Adam and Eve feel here. The heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That is the first thing that sin involves. And that heart has to be changed before there can be any entrance into heaven or before there can be any reception in the presence of God. Man's heart has to be changed and it is only God himself who can give to man a new heart. If that were all, that would be tragic enough. But there is more involved. Sin involves not only pollution of the heart, but sin involves guilt before God. And so when they hear the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, they hide themselves. They cannot face God anymore. Sin involves guilt before God. And when we say that a soul is guilty, we mean that he is liable to blameworthiness and he is liable to punishment. Fallen man not only has a corrupt heart, but fallen man is guilty before God. And he cannot stand before God. And I close with this emphasis. Because we are living in a day when the doctrine of universalism is being revived with tremendous force. It's not being called universalism. But we are being told that all men are already reconciled to God. And all they need is to realize that they are reconciled to God. All men will be saved. 
no man will be lost. And as one theologian has placed it, has said recently, I do not know of anybody that is actually in hell. That is the tenor of the present day, that all men will ultimately be received by God. That is not what the Bible teaches. Sin involves guilt before God, and the guilty sinner cannot stand in God's presence. Let us thank God that there is a deliverance, a deliverance both from the power of sin and the guilt of sin, and that deliverance is found in the obedient work of the second Adam, who is our Lord Jesus Christ. been thinking it over, and I think it's best to bring this, uh, the remarks on Genesis 3 to a close very shortly, and then go on to the other topic and give the major portion of the hour to that topic. Um, the third chapter of Genesis works up, of course, to its climax in the promise that is given in verse 15, where the Lord speaks to the serpent. You remember that uh, the sin in which Adam and Eve were engaged involved a corruption of their hearts, a pollution of the heart, and also guilt, guilt before God. They could not face God when they heard his voice in the garden. And so the Lord, in loving fashion, by means of questions, brings out their true condition. And then the chapter really climaxes in the Protevangelium, as it has been called, given in verse 15. In that, we notice that there is, first of all, the divine initiative, I will put enmity. It is not an encouragement or an exhortation to the people to be at enmity with the serpent, but rather the divine initiative stands forth, I will put enmity. Salvation is always of grace, which means simply that it is of God. And had God not taken the initiative here, there would have been no salvation. Secondly, we need to notice that the salvation or deliverance consists in a reversal of attitude on the part of the woman. Enmity will I place between thee and the woman. The first word in the verse and the emphatic word, therefore, is the word enmity. Enmity will I place between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. That means that the woman had to learn that the serpent was her enemy and that God was her friend. It doesn't imply that there needs to be a reversal of attitude upon the part of the serpent because the serpent was really the enemy of mankind all along. Although he appeared as a friend and although he gave the impression to Eve that he was doing something that would be of benefit to her, actually he was her enemy and what he was seeking was the destruction of her soul. So there doesn't have to be any change on the part of the evil one, but man must see that the serpent is not his friend. <coughs> now this simply means that there must be a complete reversal of attitude, and that is brought about by God himself. I think this comes very close to the New Testament doctrine of the new birth. Um, the unbeliever, the man who is yet in his sins, is an enemy of God. He's not a sort of a disinterested person. He hates God, and he hates God's ways, and he needs a reversal of attitude, a reversal of attitude such as only God can give to him. Now, in the third place, we may notice that this enemy extends to the respective seeds. Enmity will I place between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. That is, between the descendants of Satan on the one hand, and the descendants of Eve on the other. Now there is question as to just what is meant by the descendants of Satan. I'm inclined to think that it does refer to evil men, men who throughout the course of history have aligned themselves on his side as over against God, so that even here there is an intimation that in the world there will be two kinds of people. There will be those who are with God, and there will be those who are against God. This enmity extends between their representative seeds. It may be, however, that the word is broader than that. There is a kingdom over which Satan rules, a kingdom of evil, and included in that, of course, are demons, fallen angels, all who would do the will of Satan in opposition to God. And then in the last place, we may notice that this enmity will culminate 
in a decisive blow being struck which destroys the serpent. He shall bruise, let me translate it literally, he shall bruise thee as to the head, and thou shalt bruise him as to the heel. That is, the blow which the seed of the woman strikes is a capital blow, and in turn he receives a lesser blow. He will bruise thee with respect to the head, we may render it, and thou shalt bruise him <coughs> with respect to the heel. Thus the promise is given that somehow from the human race there will arise one who will deliver the blow that will destroy the serpent. This, I think, is the first messianic prophecy in all the Old Testament. This is the fountain or mother prophecy from which all the others flow. It is given to us in very broad and general terms. And from this time on, as time progresses, the Lord reveals more and more detail concerning the Messiah who is to come. But I think we are warranted in regarding this as a genuine messianic prophecy. It does point forward that the seed of the woman, a human being, will give that fatal blow which will destroy the serpent and which will set man free from his power. Now, Adam responds to this in faith. Adam calls his wife's name Eve, for she is the mother of all living. The word Eve in the Hebrew is a very interesting word, chava. And nouns in the Hebrew, which are built on that formation, chava, uh, are nouns which indicate that a person engages in something habitually or regularly. So Eve, chava, is she who indeed gives life. We might bring out the force something like that. <coughs> she is truly the mother of all living. Adam, therefore, responds in faith to the promise of God and acknowledges that from his wife life will come. Therefore he believes the promise that God has given, and in response to that faith of Adam, God closed the man and his wife. Now, I want to hurry through this so we can get to the other subject. Just this one final thought about Genesis 3, and that is, the Lord is concerned that the man do not partake of the tree of life. I want to say a little bit about these trees. I've, in the questioning yesterday we said something, but I would like to go into it a bit more deeply now. In the first place, I do not think that these trees had any magical properties concerning them. There was nothing in the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that in itself would harm anybody. Now, we don't know what kind of a tree it was. Uh, the tradition that it was an apple tree comes from a misunderstanding. The Latin word for apple in the genitive case is mali, and the Latin word for of evil in the genitive case is mali. And somebody somewhere misinterpreted the word instead of the tree of the knowledge of good and of evil, uh, evidently took that as meaning and of an apple. And so the idea of an apple tree came in that way. But that, that is, of course, a, simply based upon a misunderstanding of the Latin. There is nothing in the Hebrew that would support that. We simply do not know what kind of a tree it was. Now, I say it had a rather sacramental significance, and I mean by that this, that if one partook of this tree when God had forbidden it, then one was disobeying God, and the sin consisted in disobeying God. Someone once sent a book to the library which was an endeavor to harmonize the Bible and science. I forget who the author was, but in the course of his discussion, he said that this fruit of this tree contained within it the seeds of old age, so that if a man ate from this fruit, he would just grow old. Well, I think that misunderstands the whole situation. That implies that the fruit had a certain magical power. And that is not what the Bible teaches at all. No, it was not the fruit in itself that could produce harm. It was the act of disobeying God that produced the harm. God had set forth this tree, you see, as an example, a test of whether man loved him or not. And if man loved him, he would abstain from this tree. If he did not love him, he would disobey God, and he would eat of the fruit of that tree, and that is what man did. Now that is why death came into the world. Man disobeyed God. I think 
that when it says in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou, thou shalt surely die, that that was fulfilled. This death is a spiritual death. You might say that the seeds of death were within man as they are within us now. And these seeds of death ripen and mature, and then when they do, that manifests itself in physical death. I do not think we have to maintain that Adam died physically on that one particular day. But at the same time, he was dead as soon as he ate that fruit. He was in death, and it would be only a matter of time until the physical death claimed him, and he would be separated from God forever unless God delivered him from that condition as God actually did. But now, in this condition, he is not to partake of the tree of life. Why is that? The Lord says, And now, lest the man stretch forth his hand and partake and eat of the tree of life and live forever. And then the sentence is broken off. It is what we call an anakaluthan. The Apostle Paul uses this type of writing very often. He begins a sentence and then he breaks it off in the middle. He is so worked up with his argument. And so here we have that same construction. And now, lest he stretch forth his hand and take and eat of the tree of life and live forever, then you expect some conclusion. I will drive him from the garden or something like that. But the conclusion is not stated. But why... Is there a concern on the Lord's part that the men do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden? Well, I don't suppose we can answer this question with any dogmatism, but I want simply to make this suggestion. If now man had eaten of this tree, he would have eaten of it when he had no right to it. No man can eat of the fruit of the tree of life unless he has the right thereto. Had Adam eaten from this tree when he had not the right thereto, he would have been doing a sinful thing. And I suppose he would have been confirmed in an estate of sin in which he would have existed forever, have lived forever, and from which there would have been no deliverance. Now, I can't prove that, of course, but I rather think that is what is intended. For the New Testament makes it clear to us that no man is to partake of the tree of life until he has the right to do it. And there must come the second Adam, who by his obedience, as the first man Adam disobeyed, by his obedience obtains for his people the right to partake of the tree of life. We will eat of that tree when we have the right to partake of it, and that right we receive through Christ. Now that is the way in which this chapter closes. The Lord drives the man and the woman from the garden. And I would use this to introduce the, second, the next theme on which I want to speak, the question of errors in the Bible. And I have spent time on these early chapters of Genesis because these are the questions and the chapters that are under dispute so much today. People do not believe these early chapters of Genesis, and they do not hesitate to dismiss them as being in error these are the grossest errors that are found in the Bible, we are told, and I think if we can satisfy ourselves with regard to these chapters, uh, there's nothing else that really should give us a tremendous amount of difficulty.